The following talk was recorded at Label the Planet 2021 Empowering Users, the annual conference on current issues in ethics, social justice and technology from the Free Software Foundation. Label the Planet is a live conference and speakers often use slides and other visual tools to assist their presentation. You can see the videos of these talks at media.libreplanet.org or on the FSF Peertube channel. Label Planet speakers do not represent the mission of the Free Software Foundation. We host speakers talking about their use of free software in different kinds of political and commercial work. The FSF supports their freedom, but does not take positions on any political issues other than those necessary to uphold the principles of free software. Like all the FSF's work on behalf of the grievance of all computer users, Nemo Planet is made possible by thousands of individuals. To keep our work going, please consider becoming an associate member via my.fsf.org join or making a donation at my.fsf.org donate. You can stay informed by subscribing to our newsletter, The Free Software Supporter, at fsf.org fss and for more information on LibrePlanet, you can visit libreplanet.org conference. Yeah. All right. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is 2021, uh, Liber Planet, and well, my name is Alper, I'm back. And uh, today we will be hearing Nadia speak with uh, her wonderful topic. I'm really, really excited to hear her talk. Uh, Nadia is giving our uh, very first uh, opening keynote today, and she's going to talk about machine agency infrastructure for uh, creative automation and uh, he's a uh, assistant professor in uh, human-centered design and engineer at the University of Washington. And well, um, she's going to talk about uh, machine designs and attributes and make them buildable, tailorable, and extendable by others. And well, I don't want to drag this too long and uh, give the microphone to Nadia to just uh, enlighten us on this topic. So. Uh, Nadia will have some. Uh, Nadia will take questions at the end of the, uh, her presentation and just go to the uh, IRC room to ask her any questions. I will be relaying to them. Nadia, it's your time. Thank you, thank you, Alper. Um, hello, Libra Planet. It's very nice to be here. I was not at Libra Planet in person last year, but I was there the year before and the year before that. This used to be very convenient because I used to live in Boston, um, but now it's also convenient because I guess we can join from anywhere in the world. So that's a bright side. I'm going to talk to you about machine agency, and it's not so much about how I think machines are going to take over the world, but how can we use the precision of machines for individual agency or creative applications? And maybe we can start first with like a little bit of history to think about computers. Um, and this is the ENIAC computer, which was invented um, as part of a post-war effort to be able to uh, more accurately have firing tables. So it was a very precise device that was very application specific. And quickly um, that functionality was recast um, and reused to be able to create personal computers. So to be able to not just calculate things for the wartime effort, but um, for people to use applications like word processing or image manipulation to be able to do uh, personal things. And that is a history that I think a lot of people are very familiar with going from industrial or mainframe computers to personal computers. 
But at the same time, um, things were also happening in machine world where uh, basically when they invented computers or a little bit thereafter, maybe five years-ish, which is, is when they first wanted to connect it to, uh, wait, first wanted to connect a computer to a milling machine. So here in this uh, issue of Popular Mechanic, you can see um, this milling machine that is being controlled by this room size computer. Um, the idea being that a computer could perhaps better interpolate complex curves and set the positions that you might need the milling machine to be at to be able to create objects that were more complex than you otherwise would be able to make by hand. So you could make repeatably these really complicated things. And since this, since this time of uh, connecting the first milling machine to this first mainframe computer, a lot of people have talked about how um, this is going to be the future. This is going to um, reduce itself to practice in the same way that we went from mainframe computers to personal computers, where now um, there's this new industrial revolution where makers are going to be able to make anything that they want, wherever they want. And often when people talk about that, they evoke this sci-fi narrative of the replicator. So the replicator in Star Trek is this machine that you walk up to and you say, I would like T Earl Grey hot, or I would like X, Y, Z, Z thing. And it just makes it for you. You don't have to iterate. You don't have to think about it. It somehow just like magically is able to assemble whatever you want. And that's definitely um, this kind of story that I was, that I used to be very excited about. Um, how can we have personal fabrication in the same way we have personal computing? And so to start, one of the things that I started exploring was how can we make machines using machines that we currently have access to? So say you go to a makerspace or a fab lab or a place where you have access to something like a large mill, can you use it to make uh, smaller mills? So this, for example, is a milling machine that is made out of cutting boards. Um, that you can uh, that you can mill with four hundred dollars worth of parts and uh, um, and some amount of time in a makerspace. And the idea, I guess, that I wanted to have there is that you would be able to have this exponential growth that people would be able to come and then take take the capabilities of the makerspace home with them. Um, and to some extent, that worked, although. A big difference between replicating the functionality of machines versus um, being able to download and run software is the replication process itself is really complex. Um, but at first, it didn't really deter me. Uh, this is another machine that I built with Alain Moyer in 2011, uh, I think, which is a, uh, it's a, briefcase size machine that pops up um, where you can put lots of different types of heads on the machine. So here, this is a 3D printing head. Um, previous picture has a milling head. And the benefit here is that it has a kinematic mount. So every time you put the head on, um, you're always locating it exactly in the same position. It has six points of contact to constrain it in six degrees of freedom. Uh, and that prevents and that prevents um, um, any kind of play. And so you don't have to recalibrate or change the motion of it 
um, even if you're detaching and reattaching the head many, many different times. Uh, this machine, you know, is uh, at the time, I think it was very, it was considered this very popular, you know, sci-fi-ish thing where they're like, wow, you know, the future is here, the Star Trek replicator, this is all really great. Uh, but actually, this machine is nothing like a personal computer. Even if it is kind of like a laptop where you can fold it down and bring it with you, a personal computer, when you do a calculation on it, you get the same number that a mainframe computer might do. You might just get it slower, but it, you're not losing precision. You're not losing any kind of accuracy. Um, whereas this machine, in comparison to a large format milling machine, for example, can only make things that are very small. It can't make things out of hard materials like titanium. Um, and is overall extremely restricted in the kinds of things that it can make. And so this, this, this area that I was exploring of, like what does personal replicator look like, I uh, eventually decided was not, really, um, was not really going in the direction that I wanted. It was, it was a way in which I could make like plastic things and it was a cool demonstration, but ultimately it wasn't really Um, so I think this is approximately where I stopped. Um, I think this is approximately where my internet decided to be on the fritz. Uh, so this is a machine that I made with Alain Moyer, which folds into this briefcase, um, and it has interchangeable heads where you can have it as a 3D printer or as a milling machine here in this picture, it's, um, milling circuit boards, uh, and the big difference that I decided, or at the moment of making this machine, it got a lot of attention. People were like, wow, it's the future of replicators slash machines of the personal fabrication is here. But actually, this machine is not a personal fabricator at all. Um, it can only make things that are much smaller than it. So it can make things that are made out of plastic or small circuit boards. And unlike a mainframe computer versus a personal computer, or with a personal computer, if you make a calculation, you get the same number as if you do on the mainframe computer, it just might be slower. With this machine, I'm getting actually nothing at all similar to what you could make on an industrial machine. I can only make smaller, um, less strong, maybe prototypes and artifacts. And so the analogy, I think, actually really breaks down where um, the difference between a mainframe computer and a personal computer is totally different from the difference between a large factory and what I can do on this briefcase machine. And it's not just there where I think things are breaking down. This is um, a milling machine that is at NASA Ames in California, where I work with some of, uh, some of my collaborators. And this is a Cincinnati Hydrotel machine. Uh, and the only difference between the machine that you see in this picture and the machine that you see in this picture is the computer. This is the same model of machine that they used to connect to a computer in the 1950s. Um, and the only difference is this machine is using a computer that runs Windows XP and the previous machine was using a computer that ran on punch cards. So there's something really wrong here. I think that in terms of how we're innovating on uh, machine design and automation for fabrication is actually, 
yeah, kind of getting stuck and not, um, and not really um, enabling, and not really enabling new kinds of precision automation. But here is a very, very simple machine. Um, this machine just winds electric coils. Uh, the, uh, uh, the thing is that we needed a lot of electromagnets that used a certain resistance length of wire. Um, and we only needed maybe 50 of them, but winding, and so we could have wound them by hand, but winding each one of them hand, by hand would have been time consuming and require a lot of precision from us as um, coil makers. And so instead, this very small machine, which is just two motors and some laser cut parts, um, with a simple control system is a way in which you can actually make this object um, precisely and repeatably without necessarily investing a huge amount in the machine itself. And so using a machine like this or kind of using machines itself as a tool to be able to produce things um, is a new direction that I, I wanted to explore further to think about, you know, how can we actually use the precision that you get from automation as a creative tool instead of um, needing to rely on one machine that could solve all of our problems? Can we make it possible that you can do a lot of reconfigurability in the machine itself? Here's a robot arm. Um, this is a uh, See, these are architecture students who are building a complex facade, which you see on the right. Um, and robot arms, I think, are one of the types of machines in which they're intended to be multi-purpose. You're intended to be um, to be configuring them to do different things. So you can put uh, in car factories; they're often used for welding or for spray painting, uh, or you could maybe perhaps use it somewhere where you're doing an assembly line and you're picking up something from a pallet and putting it on a conveyor belt. And that's, I think, a really great notion. However, here you can see there's like complicated software that's at play to make this undulating surface on the right. They're using a hot wire cutting knife or like a hot knife to be able to cut into the styrofoam so it heats up um, and then is able to cut into this surface. And, um, you know, th these, these are people who are good at writing control software and good at um, controlling this robot, but the end of the hot knife needs to be a particular temperature to be able to cut through the styrofoam well. And as the environment changes, and this is outside, um, you have to be able to control it uh, in different ways. And the way in which they found most easy to achieve this, or the way they found um, uh, was the fastest path to getting this work is, if you look in the left, there is a person in a black jacket um, holding a surge protector, and that person is observing the styrofoam, turning the hot wire on if it's getting too cold and turning it off if it's getting too hot. And so you have this complicated system, but actually interfacing with it is so complicated that the easiest way to actually get things done is to put this extremely expensive controller in the loop, a human. A human is actually doing the simplest temperature control, if too hot, turn on, if too cold, turn off. Um, and that I think is, is 
there's something very wrong about this because if we want to be able to use machines in a creative and iterative way, then getting stuck on things like this is not, uh, is not, we really need to lower the threshold to being able to use machines in lots of different ways. So I kind of think of it at different levels where you're using machines, so you use the machine exactly for what it was intended for, or you're hacking machines, so you're taking a machine that was intended for something else, or it's not totally designed for what you want to do, but you can make it work. And then finally, making machines or being able to make a machine easily to do whatever it is that you want. So I started looking into decomposing machines into smaller mechanical and networked parts, um, working together with my friend James Coleman. So here are decomposing machines into um, just the smallest modules, linear and rotary actuation, um, where every time you add uh, an extra stage, you can add an extra degree of freedom to the motion. You can put different types of end effectors on the machine um, and build things up like that. Uh, every stage has its own controller um, and each controller can be added to a network. And as you add additional controllers to the network, you can add additional stages. Um, and that allows for, uh, and that allows for just like the rapid prototyping of different types of machines where uh, here is uh, another styrofoam cutting machine that we very quickly prototyped um, where you can use the machine to do things that would be very difficult to do by hand. Like for example, this piece of styrofoam that we cut to say hell on one side and yeah on the other. That's something that I could cut by hand but it would just take me a it would take me a long time. It would be very complicated for me to figure out exactly how to sculpt this. Um, and to make that possible, um, the networked controllers uh, that I worked on with Alan, the same person I worked on with, I worked on the briefcase machine with. Um, network controllers are a crucial part where it's not that you have to spin up a new controller every time um, you make a new machine, but you can plug the controllers together, kind of like Lego as you're configuring the machine to do different things. And then you can describe what the machine is doing in software instead um, and use that as a way to really lower the threshold to starting to build different types of machines. So you have, uh, you have like a software application that's controlling, you have um, the virtual machine object, which is describing the machine that you have, you have your networked controllers, and then you have the mechanical modules that make up your machines. And this way you can have a lot of different types of, uh, a lot of different types of input um, or a lot of different types of software interfaces. Here's another software interface um, that I worked on with my advisor, Neil Gershenfeld, who, um, who, is at MIT. Um, and it helps do, for example, tool pathing or, um, or, or slicing of different kinds of things that you might want to fabricate. Um, but you can also replace, for example, just the input of an image with something uh, like webcam input or an image so that you can start doing things like conditional controls. Um, so that instead of saying, oh, just like cut out the shape of these letters that I already specified, have a look at this uh, webcam feed and whenever it turns pink, then start shaking your, then start shaking your well plates, for example. Um, and making, making machines 
to do lots of different things was a um, was pretty fun. For example, um, in less than an afternoon, we made this big wide styrofoam wing to be able to get some baseline measurements in comparison to this morphing wing that you see on the right. We make uh, machines to do lots of different um, types of uh, image capture and 3D scanning um, for different types of art projects. But then ultimately James and I were um, pretty uh, we're pretty frustrated with the fact that we made all of these modular parts, but no one was replicating them. We made everything freely available. Um, we licensed everything CC BY. Um, we wrote a lot of documentation, but ultimately no one was replicating our work because the parts that we were using were just too complicated. You needed a water jet to build things. You needed these complicated mills. So we made this new version of the stages with the same controllers. But um, instead, we used this. Uh, but instead, we used this uh, material cardboard as the basis for design. Um, and Ruben, if you would please play this video. So cardboard, unlike metal, is a. So cardboard, unlike metal, is this material that everyone is comfortable modifying. Um, so being able to uh, create a machine out of cardboard parts means that not just that it's like a quick iteration, we're making one stage using laser cutter and cardboard components and um, off-the-shelf parts. It means that in an afternoon you can start prototyping your first machine, um, but also that once you've prototyped the machine, you can easily modify it to do different types of things. Um, so if you see, uh, I'm not totally sure exactly where you are in the video, but the, if you see, like, we have these little Lego-like nubs on the stages so that you can figure them in different ways, you can stick them on top of each other. And we taught it in um, the distributed class Fab Academy as a machine building, um, as a machine building one week assignment where everybody uses kit to make a machine. Um, and they made a lot of really, really silly and different things. Like this is um, like a 3D scanner moving uh, your phone around to do image capture or machines that are stirring coffee or machines that are um, doing other types of hot wire cutting machines. There was a machine that was doing, that was like slowly filling every segment of bubble wrap with liquid. And this is, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit frivolous or maybe a little bit, uh, not necessarily super serious objects that are being made like ketchup being extruded on an omelet. But if a lot of people who aren't engineers or machine designers are able to quickly prototype automating automation systems um, in physical space in a week, then that means we can do a lot more also with not, um, with not, uh, um, with, with not not frivolous applications, just making it easier or lowering the threshold to machine building, I think uh, really, uh, really helps. Yeah, in this year, um, besides all of these hot wire cutters and plotting machines, there were actually two different places that made sand, sculpt sand gardening machines. Um, there was a sand gardening machine in Italy, and then there was another sand gardening machine in Ohio.
And sand gardening, of course, needs to be quite precise because you need to create these precise mandalas. But I always thought that you reached Zen enlightenment by the process of doing the sand gardening and not necessarily um, by having a machine do it for you. But <laughs> there, you, there you go. So, uh, Ruben, you can just skip. Okay, thank you. Uh, so here I am back in being the person controlling the machine, uh, the presentation. Here's like a one machine I just wanted to highlight that was made by people using the kit. So as you can see, they actually quickly left the cardboard and they can 3D print different parts with the off-the-shelf parts and the network controllers. And they're making um, and they're making this daikon radish machine, the the con sitter. Uh, and you can see, or one thing I really like about this short video documenting their process is you can really see how they're iterating with the machine. Um, they first made their own knife, but that didn't work, so they replaced it with this other knife. They made this really cute interface, which they managed to connect to their physical machine. Um, they realized that a long cantilever daikon radish was no good, so they added this tailstock. Um, they figured out the difference between um, the amount of force it needed while running versus the amount of force it would need to start. And then they ultimately made these like uh, daikon noodles, which also seems maybe kind of frivolous. But at the same time, if you imagine how hard would it be to make lots of daikon noodles like this by hand, it would take you a long time. Um, so this is really an example that I, I, I like a lot of uh, funny food application um, to be able to do this quick turnaround machine design and iteration. Nadia, so the, uh, the history of digital fabrication or computer controlled processes separates everything into these different segments or these different roles where you're um, computing what the curves are that you need. Um, you're designing and representing them in CAD. You're transferring it to the machine um, through machine instructions that you can connect in, that you can that you can figure out in CAM. Um, you need communication within the machine to make sure that everything is happening at real time, and you have maybe some feedback and controls to actually get the thing that you want. And none of these things have stood still, but they've sort of iterated within themselves, uh, being able to, you know, there's, we have pretty advanced CAD now, including things like FreeCAD. Um, and we have more and more options for a CAM. Um, and there are more and more free software options for doing things like really great Not robot hear control. Me. Um, but actually, it's sort of hard to build up the uh, to build up the, the continuation between these things. So I wanted to have like a brief interlude in which I just, we just consider the pipe operator um, in Bash, where, you know, if you use a pipe, you can pipe the output from one command to another command. So if I wanted to like search through something, I could pipe the output of ls into, uh, into grep or and be able to search through the output of something in my file system and it's a very very easy way to connect lots of things together uh, and that kind of operator i think is just a mindset that i would like to continue in tools for creative automation and so when we think about how can we build tools 
for creative automation uh, that Oh, I can hear her. I can hear you guys. Sorry, I just turned you down. Is something wrong? Uh, Nadia, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, since we lost a little bit of time, uh, you're running out of time. So uh, if you'd like to have questions or just like, you know, wrap up, uh, just let you know. Okay, go ahead. Okay, sorry. Sorry, everybody. I will. We can try to give you an extra five minutes. All right, sounds good. So I have. I'll do a very brief consideration of things that I think are important for free machine development. Um, so what goes into this? I think that if you wanna be able to replicate machines, you need to be able to do so with limited equipment. So increasingly, the things that we're designing use things like off the shelf 3D printers or low cost, um, other kinds of low cost fabrication machines. You have to design so that things are um, fabricatable. You have to design your machines such that they're easy to put together and you don't necessarily um, encourage a lot of different types of mistakes you might make. Uh, you have to write a lot of documentation, unlike um, in software where you can write a make file or other things that will automate things. The person assembling the machine is imprecise and without guidance is going to um, maybe make a lot of mistakes. So how can you include as much documentation as possible to really make it possible for people to replicate your work? Which includes, for example, um, including in your designs the tools that you might need to build um, the parts. So here, uh, Arbor Press is pressing in these pegs, but the orange part is a fixture for holding this part in place so that they get pressed in exactly at, um, exactly, at uh, exactly orthogonal. And how do you um, encourage community and support community support, um, making sure that people who are replicating this work have a place to turn to or um, a place to uh, a place to get support in their build? So I'm showing pictures of the machine Jubilee, which uh, is being developed in my group. Um, where it also has interchangeable heads. Um, so you can pick up and drop off different types of, uh, you can pick up and drop off different types of tools. Um, and it's also kinematically mounted like the briefcase machine. Um, the bed itself is also kinematically mounted. So you can pick up and drop off the bed lots of, uh, lots of times without having to rehome it. Um, and uh, yeah, picking up and dropping off tools lets you do things that are maybe sort of straightforward multi-tool applications like multi-headed 3D printing, where you might want to be 3D printing with two different colors, so you pick up two different extruders, or maybe doing things like liquid handling um, because you want to do biology experiments um, and handling liquid, in, uh, handling liquid in well plates is a way in which um, you can advance your scientific exploration. And there, I think one of the exciting parts is how do you make it that the software and the hardware is really tightly coupled? So here is a microscope that's um, looking at these fungal spores. And so how can I create, um, how can I really create um, opportunities for people who are, for example, developing diagnostic tests or, be, or looking at these um, molecules and spores? to be able to develop their own types of um, automated workflows. So things that maybe uh, I as a machine builder wouldn't come up with, but a biologist perhaps would and 
um, lowering the threshold to automating something like that. Uh, and I think that that means there is a very strong software component for that. This is a um, this is a visual scripting based workflow environment for, for example, controlling um, this tool head, which is a sonication wand, um, to be able to do uh, uh, to be able to search through um, scientific exploration space of chemical uh, of chemical engineering. You need, um, on one hand, perhaps first to build this machine, but once you've built it, how do you make it as easy as possible to control it? Or, and this will be the last thing I'll show you guys, um, how can you make manipulators and end effectors that allow, that can integrate with the rest of these systems that are actually really um, novel? This is a uh, ultrasonic, uh, this is ultrasonic manipulator. So it's creating this sort of virtual container. Um, so I'm holding this little styrofoam pellet in, uh, in the air. Um, meaning that I can pick up things that are extremely fragile. So if I wanted to do bio 3D printing, for example, with mammalian cells, which really don't like being shoved through a syringe, um, can I pick them up and drop them off with this very gentle uh, manipulator? So anyway, it's a tour through a lot of different types of machines and uh, scientific automation exploration things that we're up to. I'm sorry for my internet, um, but I'm still very happy to be here. Hopefully we still have some time for questions. I'd like to shout out to um, the people in my research group, including Joshua, Hannah, Jasper, Gabrielle, Blair, Kelly, and Orlando. Um, yeah, and thanks a lot for bearing with me. I'm excited to be here. And if you have any questions, please post them in IRC. Well, Nadia, thank you very much for uh, your well, excellent uh, presentation. <laughs> I'm sorry that I, I couldn't follow it as much as I'd like to because since I have to deal with a lot of things. And well, I, I'm checking the uh, room right now, IRC room, and there's still time uh, for questions. Well, actually, more time. And I'm really sorry to rush you uh, beforehand. I, my watch is a little bit, uh, well, late. So uh, no if there's anybody. Any questions right now? I'd like to ask. Uh, well, uh, one dropped. Okay, Nadia, uh, do you think that it's possible for a material which conducts uh, electricity to be used by this machine under certain oh, easy yeah. com uh, um, modification? Uh, Humonis asks. Okay. Totally. I mean, we've actually done that because uh, one of the reasons that we like syringe manipulation of things as opposed to only. So first of all, you can 3D print um, uh, electrically conductive materials using FDM print heads um, so you could extrude it. But those are often highly resistive. And if you wanted even more conductive, electronically conductive traces, for example, that you wanted to print, you could do it with paste, like solder paste extrusion. Um, and so those are definitely, definitely things that uh, we have done slash are playing with. And if you had an application where you really wanted to do more of that, um, like you wanted to create 3D circuit boards or something, I highly encourage you to build a machine to experiment with. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the people who's building a Jubilee machine right now is specifically doing it to experiment with um, high, um, high power capacity batteries. And so, oh, I realize you guys can't actually see me. 
But imagine like a interdigitated uh, 3D structure. So you have like a bunch of battery fingers that are printed in one direction and then um, interleaved with those fingers, you print other fingers. So you really maximize the surface contact. And so um, for this, obviously you need to print um, electrically conductive pastes. Um, and so that is what they're doing. And not only are they doing that, but they're printing um, like coaxial extrusion. So one paste inside of another paste, kind of like if you have toothpaste that's like blue on the inside and white on the outside um, for being able to even more increase the, the surface area. So this is exactly the kind of thing I would be excited about, like using machines, customizing machines or tailoring and extending them to do different kinds of things. All right, uh, well, uh, another question, uh, like it's not a question, it's a request actually. Uh, is it possible that you can just provide links uh, how to do further reach and contribute to well, the project and everything? I'm putting it in the chat for Alper. Oh, okay, I will I will relate to folks in the room. Yeah. So this is like a, this is a link to the wiki for the Jubilee 3D project. Mm -hmm. um, on the wiki, there is a link to the GitHub, which has um, documentation and design files, and also a link to the Discord. Um, where people talk about building machines. One of my favorite channels is the laboratory automation channel. There's also the built to Jubilee channel you could check out. Okay, and well, uh, well, this is probably a, a common question that everybody had in mind. Uh, do you have any suggestions for well uh, starters? Uh, well, for people who are just not familiar with the technology, do you have any website to just I don't know. Uh, help in the situations? Um, so say like one thing that I've been doing in the pandemic is uh, one thing I've been doing in the pandemic is teaching. Normally people would come to the lab and use machines to make more machines and interact with me in person, which hasn't been possible um, for the last year. But I have still, you know, I'm still a professor, so I'm still teaching. And I teach a class on digital fabrication and prototyping where um, yes, yeah, since we're all at home, I actually require everyone to get an inexpensive 3D printer, specifically the Ender 3 Pro, um, and start playing around with it. It's around like $190, so it's like a good starting point for, um, yeah, I know all machines are sort of expensive, but they range maybe from a couple hundred dollars to like hundreds of thousands of dollars. So to me, it seems like a good entry point to start experimenting with, um, 3D printing, which I think is a good step into um, automating lots of other types of, of, of tasks, because there's just a ton of support for people getting started in 3D printing. So um, the Ender 3 Pro is based on the uh, open source hardware design of the Prusa, the Prusa 3D printer from Czech Republic. Um, and uh, especially Prusa, but also other companies like other open source hardware 3D printer companies like Ultimaker have a lot of tutorials and software and I don't know, things that um, can help you get started on uh, digital fabrication and prototyping. I don't know if well, that answers. Uh, it does, it does. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> since I'm a really uh, avid uh, admirer of uh, 3D printing technology from the start, uh, I couldn't afford or couldn't find a reasonable thing for myself for a while. I'm really glad for your uh, suggestions. So uh, there's 
a lot of chatter in the room, but there's not much questions, actually. People are actually commenting uh, about the thing that you are talking a lot. Uh, but uh, in this well, silence, maybe I can step in and ask my personal question, since nobody's doing that. So uh, I have one ethical question and another technical question. Which one you prefer? Uh, I can start with ethical. Why not? Okay. Well, uh, it's well, it's always considered, but uh, it's just getting a little bit more uh, practical these days. Uh, I'm not really up to the point, but uh, you can just fill it in. Uh, what do you think that the capabilities of uh, 3D printing technology uh, can just uh, bring to s uh, social life? There's a lot of like uh, prohibited items that normally uh, public cannot have obtained or produced themselves, but 3D printing technology makes it quite easier for this kind of complicated uh, prohibited technologies to uh, obtain by regular people. So there are a lot of people uh, worried about this in the world. Uh, so since you're in this, uh, uh, what you can... Yeah. Well, I mean, this is sort of a cliche, but the thing that's, the thing that is bad is hurting people or, um, yeah, using weapons, for example, to hurt people. And there's been a lot of attention to 3D printing guns um, as like a thing that is concerning. And I don't want to, I don't want to negate any of that concern, but um, as someone who is quite good at building things, I will say that 3D printing guns is one of the hardest ways to make a gun. And if you wanted to make a gun, you could do it in a lot of much easier ways. And if you look at, I don't know, the history of this, you know, uh, the Unabomber built a ton of his own uh, weapons and tools as also a way to avoid um, detection by law enforcement. And I completely acknowledge that... Uh, you know, people making things to hurt people is a bad thing. But I'm not sure that regulating the means of production is a good way to address this risk. Um, I think that there, is, there are a lot of reasons why um, people are turning to, um, yeah, radicalizing groups and, 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 and yeah, creating um, and normalizing extremist behavior. And I think that overall, in my opinion, at least 3D printing and other kinds of digital fabrication um, enable people to learn, uh, to learn skills in science and technology, but also in um, engineering or design or art that allow for yeah, different kinds of engagement and different paths. And that, uh, you know, making it possible for people to have paths where they can find fulfillment and belonging in society is much more important than trying to make sure that somebody who maybe could 3D print a gun is not going to do it and use that to hurt someone. I mean, I live in the United States of America. There are a lot more easy ways to get guns than by 3D printing them. I cannot I cannot agree more. So, uh, well, since I just complained, there are uh, three other questions. Uh, I'd like to mash them up together, and I can probably merge two of them. So, uh, is there anything that, uh, well, just concerns you in this industry, uh, like industry and space, that is, uh, well, uh, concerning you? Any trends that might be troublesome in the future for uh, 3D printing and everything? 
And uh, how much does it cost to build um, uh, build average? Uh, how much in average costs uh, of building these uh, machines actually? So perhaps you can just match them up together. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing that I think is really bad um, and potentially um, could be changed by people like us in the future is I think that for hardware, the patent system is super broken. Uh, and I know that it was originally developed to be able to help people um, monetize their inventions and have sustainability in a robust inventor culture. But nowadays, more than ever, I think, um, patents and IP, the way that people are traditionally licensing and litigating around IP um, really makes it difficult to um, to have lots of broad participation in this kind of um, and this kind of uh, um, like vibrant and robust invention network. Uh, and so I think that one thing that really is going to have to happen is to understand what does what does free and open source hardware mean in the landscape and how can we um, make sure that patent law and the way in which we deal with intellectual property is encouraging this rather than discouraging it. Because I think it's super important to have shared reliable infrastructure, things that are vetted by multiple different parties with competing interests. And right now, um, yeah, there's just not that much that incentivizes that. And even if it's possible, you know, there's there's always ways in which you can say, okay, well, I'm ideologically, uh, I'm ideologically just completely behind this notion of free and open source hardware. But then you have to give up a lot of you have to give up a lot of things along the way. So if you wanted to start a company and start up with uh, uh, um, venture funding, for example, which is like an option or one way in which you can offset a lot of the costs of developing hardware. Um, oftentimes investors don't wanna go anywhere near things that aren't patented and protected instead of freely shared. Um, so that's one thing that I think is uh, really in need of reform. Uh, for costs, like the different machines that I showed all cost different amounts, like the MTM Snap was maybe $400. The cardboard machines were also a couple hundred dollars. The Jubilee, uh, the Jubilee machine that I showed towards the end kind of depends on what heads you put on it. Um, but if you wanted to, for example, put a microscope and a syringe and a 3D print head, it's probably around $1,000, which is why I think maybe some of the off the shelf um, 3D printers or other machines could be a better place to start if you have never made or used machines before. Um, but you could also just go for it if uh, it's the kind of thing you want to explore. Well, uh, thank you very much. Well, uh, there, there's other two questions that I have to skip. I hope they can just forgive me for that. And uh, well, thank you very much uh, for the presentation. That I really enjoyed it, and I will watch it again uh, without distractions uh, that I have right now. And uh, if you have any closing remarks, anything you say is for time. Uh, the next uh, talk is coming up, so we'll switch to that. So thank you very much again uh, for everything and everything that you said. Thank you, Alper, and thank you also, Ruben, um, and thank you, Libra Planet and the FSF. I am. Uh... I'm excited to be here, but I hope to also be on a Libra planet in the future and maybe answer more questions in person. Please stay safe, everyone. We hope that too. See you around next year. Bye. Okay. Bye. <laughs>